Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome back to Big Swinging Stocks. This week, we're joining you with the first of a two-part series with ex-Fidelity Fund Manager and my favourite climate activist, Kate Howard. This is part one of our series where we're talking all about the six ways to save the world, including with mining. In this part, we'll discuss if it's possible to individually solve climate change and why Kate recommends everyone go into engineering to save the world. And in part two, we'll go into the technical details of investing for climate change and whether your super fund can help supercharge the battle against climate change. Please welcome Kate Howitt to the show. Hello, Kate. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. I love chatting with you. Same. It's always a good morning when you're on the show. So we've talked about a little bit on sustainability and ESG in the finance space, but you have a real passion for this topic. So tell me, set the scene. What's the call to action for climate change? What do we need to do? Well, I think most of your listeners would be aware this is the defining challenge of our time. I'm at the tail end of my career and so, you know, I've got maybe a couple more decades to experience it. But I look at my kids and for them and their working lives, the whole challenge of climate change is going to explode for them and they're going to see the impacts and they're going to see the outcome And if you put it in an investing context, their accumulation years are going to be during the period where we're trying to decarbonize and their retirement and drawdown years are going to be whether, you know, we've done it well or done it not so well. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's going to dominate the financial lives, the physical lives of everyone who's young today. This is going to be the defining issue in the same way that I imagine people who lived through World War I or World War II that was a pretty defining event for them. Those are actually pretty contained when you think about the decades-long effort that the world now needs to put in to reduce our carbon emissions and probably actually also need to draw carbon out of the air. And it's got to change a lot. It's going to have to change industrial systems. It's going to have to change financial systems. And it's going to have to change personal consumption and the choices that we make individually. But that's nothing new. So things are always changing. If you look at TV dramas that are set even just in the 50s and 60s, you can see, you know, in those dramas, everyone's smoking or they're drinking while they're driving and you've got, God, like, who does that? No one does that anymore. That was crazy, the stuff they did back then. It's just like that. Like humans, you know, we don't know everything. So we invent cigarettes and we think, oh, cigarettes are great. Let's all smoke cigarettes. And then we realize, oh, cigarettes not so good. Let's all stop smoking cigarettes. And we have to go through that transition. That's kind of a pretty normal story about how human civilization has gone. Mm. Something looks great. We discover, well, it's great, but there's bits that are a problem, and then we've got to fix that problem. And then we move on to the next one. This is just human innovation, human creativity. So I see this as a really big challenge, but also a challenge that we've seen before and that we've dealt with successfully before. Yeah. I think the context about how quickly this is going to impact our lives as millennials and Gen Z and Gen Alpha, that puts it into context. But do you think that individual action can actually turn the tide? Or do you think this is really an institutional and government problem? It's definitely both, right? If you just have a lot of young people making changes in their lifestyles, 
and you didn't have institutions coming to the party, we would not get there because a lot of the heavy emitters are things like the cement industry, the steel industry. These things have a chemical aspect to them where they inherently release CO2, right? They're each, I don't know, about 8%, 10% of global emissions, those two industries each, right? So if we didn't change those, it's going to be really hard. Yeah. And then the individual obviously is not going to have much impact on that. But in, you know, the entire economic architecture works on supply and demand and demand aggregates up. So, you know, demand for cigarettes is down because a lot of individual people either didn't start smoking or quit smoking. Mm. So the choices that we make of where we put our consumer dollar actually does make a difference. And then increasingly now there's the demand pressure of investments because the, all the companies that manage your investment dollar, whether it's a superannuation company or a funds management company, they all see you as clients. And if the clients are saying, we want sustainable options to invest our money in, the companies know if they don't provide those sustainable options, then they're going to lose clients. So I know capitalism is kind of seen as the big evil problem here, but capitalism is just a way of responding to human preferences. Mm. And so if human preferences shift from I'll buy anything to I only want to buy and invest in things that are sustainable. Capitalism is the mechanism by which all of the companies in the background reshift their priorities to respond to that change in consumer preferences. So if consumers signal what they want by buying or not buying and investing or not investing, then all of the companies and institutions behind it will make a difference. So individuals have the power through consumer choice to help us answer the climate challenge. But is there anything else we can do in our daily lives beyond what's like this momentum we already have towards cleaner investment options that is sort of naturally happening? It's funny. There's a whole spectrum of actions you could take. And I know some young people who say climate change is such an issue, I'm not going to have kids. So mm. I would say that's at one end of the spectrum, right? Like that is that's a, a pretty big response that you can make yeah. in response to climate change. Mm. And there are choices you can make that are not nearly so life momentous, but, you know, require a certain amount of kind of capital and financial progress. Like, you know, you can buy an electric vehicle, you can electrify your house when you're a homeowner, you can put solar panels on those kinds of things. But if you even dial it back down into what can you can do day to day, to feel like you're just chipping away at the problem. Mm. And there are a couple of like just simple things that I think if you fast forward a couple of decades and people are making these retro shows about what life is like back now, you know, they'll show us doing these things and everyone will go, what? They did? That just makes no sense. So there's a couple of really kind of minor things that I think have just got to go away. So my favorite one of those is imported water. Now, like, I'm not going to mention any brand names, but you go to a cafe and they mm. say, would you like sparkling or still? And you go, oh, I like sparkling. And then on your table appears a bottle that was bottled in Italy. And then, and then it was shipped across around water. the world. <laughs> right? Now, yeah. there is currently no way of transporting goods from one side of the world to the other that doesn't involve burning fossil fuels. Mm. And again, with consumer demand, if everyone said, that's ridiculous, I don't want, I mean, because basically what they're saying is, would you like carbon intensive water yeah. or low carbon water? Mm. The, and it's not, you know, like, and so now I'm the crazy person who says, 
well, is it local sparkling or is it pre-bottled imported sparkling? Mm. And they kind of look at me like, what are you talking about? But I'm happy to drink sparkling water if they've just carbonated it on the premises. That's quite nice. But I really, I don't want to be drinking, like I look at that and I go, that's not sparkling water, that's just bottled emissions. Yeah, I've never even thought about water before. Yeah, yeah. So that has got to go away, right? We have just got to stop drinking. We have got to stop sending a demand signal that I would like water that was bottled in Europe and shipped over here. That's just dumb. So Mm. let's stop that. My second one in that vein is flowers. They're very romantic. Particularly for Valentine's Day, when there's such a a spike in demand for roses. Mm -hmm. All of those roses are actually grown in Africa. They are heated. They're in glass houses that are heated. So that burns fossil fuels because there's no solar panels being put up in these low-income countries. Mm -hmm. And then they are airshipped to get to markets around the world to get here in time and to get here before they spoil. So again, when you get that beautiful bouquet, it's not a bouquet of romantic gesture. It's a bouquet of gratuitous carbon emissions. It's just silly. I'm really seeing a cinematic trailer for a fantastic ad, which is like you sit down at a cafe and someone's like, do you want water? And then what they, you're like, yeah, sparkling. And then someone just passes you like a nuclear reactor plant. <laughs> or like, oh, it's Valentine's Day. I love you so much. It's not roses. Here's it's some emissions. Like, yeah. Just literally emissions, just like a nice little cloud. Yeah. With your power, there are green power plans. And my rule of these kind of consumer choices Mm -hmm. is if you can afford to do it, you should. So these days, my personal belief is that anyone who can afford to buy an electric vehicle Should. should buy an electric vehicle. Any internal combustion car, any car, new car that gets bought now in the, you know, in the rich world will live out kind of 10 maybe years in the rich world and then it'll probably get shipped off to Africa or Southeast Asia where it'll have another 10 years. Yeah. So any car that we buy now that is burning petrol is going to be doing emissions into the 2040s and that's kind of sobering thought. And fortunately, there are a lot of electric car companies on the market and some of them are quite affordable. It's not, oh, an EV means you're buying a luxury car. Mm. There are affordable ones now. And so if you can afford to buy one, you should. So do you think that wealthier people, like Australia's okay, average wealth, we're doing quite well, but do you think that wealthier people actually have more of a responsibility to respond to exactly these, like consumer choices that do come with a price tag? Personally, I do. Mm. The really wonderful thing about Australia is that we are a wealthier nation but we're more like Europe where generally across the community, for the most part, there's an acceptance of climate change and an understanding we need to do something about it. Mm. We have, for the most part, avoided the extreme political polarization of the US where it's become a sign of membership of a certain political leaning Mm. to be anti doing anything about climate change. And so that's the good thing is, you know, I don't think there are huge swathes of our population who who don't agree with all the things I'm saying. There is a bit of inertia of, well, but I've just always bought this kind of car and this is something new. So does it make sense? Does it not make sense? Can I afford it? But I think previously the consideration was, oh, should I get an electric vehicle? What if I need to make a long trip? What will the range be? I think now it's more like, how am I going to make that work? Like, 
we very quickly need to transition to being all electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to have to do the charging infrastructure and we're going to have to figure out, well, if you do need to do a road trip, you're going to have to get a high car or a go-get or but something. To your you know, point, or you can get one of those. Like Australians making a choice about electric vehicles is in and of itself a demand signal. Like we're going to see yeah. electric chip vehicles, exactly. charging stations in camping grounds and yeah. in national parks. Yep. Yep. As yep. soon as Australians are like, I want to go on a road trip. But what about like young people who may not have the available funds to buy an electric vehicle, what can we do that's like practical response to this that might actually be a meaningful change? Yeah, I mean, I do think where you can make choices for a green alternative, you should do that. So if you're paying for your utility bills, you know, your provider will give you a choice of green power and it will cost a bit more. And the skeptics say, oh, don't do that because there's green power in the grid and they'll just direct that green power to you. It doesn't actually add anything. Mm -hmm. Well, on one viewing of it, that's true. But on the other viewing of it, I can tell you, having talked to those executives of those companies, they will tell you, well, only this many people choose green power. So people don't care about it. They take that as a measure of do people care or do they not care? Same thing with, you know, if you book a flight and you have the option to do the carbon offset. Oh, well, does it matter? Or are they going to do it anyway? It sends a signal because executives watch that and they say, do people care about this or do they not? So if you can afford to do that, and for a flight, it's usually a couple of dollars. So if you can afford to do those things, then that sends a signal back into the system. It's like a little voting. We get to vote every couple of years on the big ticket items and definitely make your vote count on Mm. that one. But, you know, and it's great to see that we now have politicians who are pushing for car emission standards so that we actually get a better choice of car in Australia because once you've got more parity. Which is exactly the way that we reduced emissions in that industry to start with. Like the drastic reduction was because regulation was introduced. So So it's it's both, right? Individual action alone is not going to solve this. But a lot of individual action can catalyze the institutional changes mm. that and will solve it. What about careers? Are there particular industries that are in dire need of a workforce to actually decarbonize? Yeah, and absolutely, this is a really good point. So in simplest terms, the way we solve this is we turn the grid to electric. Mm-hmm. So instead of burning coal, we use wind power, solar power, batteries, but that's kind of, you know, that's been called the tip of the iceberg, right? That's the first step. Then what we need to do is massively expand the grid by all of these things that used to also be done by burning fossil fuels, like heavy transport, Mm -hmm. air transport, cement, steel, building products, all of those things, we electrify those. So your grid has to turn green, but then your grid has to get like five times bigger. Yeah. So electricity has to take on the role that used to be played by burning fossil fuels. But to actually make that happen from a practical point of view, we need electricians because someone's actually got to install all the heat pumps and solar panels. Mm. We need electrical engineers because there's a lot of grid stuff that needs to be rolled out, needs to be all connected, needs to be finessed. That doesn't happen by itself. And then instead of mining a bunch of coal and pulling a bunch of oil and gas we don't really need petroleum engineers anymore. So all those people who might have been petroleum engineers and a whole bunch more need to become mining engineers because what we do need is a bunch more copper, a bunch more nickel, a bunch more rare earths, a bunch more cobalt. So if you are 
not sure what to do with your life, but you care about saving the planet, seriously dedicating your life to becoming an electrician, an electrical engineer, or a mining engineer, or a mechatronic engineer, those are going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So this is like we're on the eve of World War II, everything's getting really dicey out there, and it's a call to arms, sign up, join the army. Do you want to join the Air Force and Navy? <laughs> the Air Force which and Navy of the army. Five engineering like, streams you know, would you like to enter? Which of these would yeah. you like? Join yeah. the army, right? Yeah. Sign up, start rolling up bandages. This is a fight we've got to have and we're going to win it, but we're going to win it. Um, and as much as I have kind of fantasies of retraining as an, en- uh, as an electrician, you know, I think kind of my days are done. But for young people out there, and the great news about that is, it's going to be a great career. The demand for those for people, astronomically well. they are going to get paid unbelievably because yeah. there are so few of them yeah. and so much demand that this is what tech guys were over the last couple of decades. This and is what the new software programmers, were. absolutely. This is exactly right. So, this is the hot industry of the future and you can be a part of it. A lot of people, though, will say, well, I don't want to go into mining. It's dirty. I think this is perhaps a real like seismic shift for a lot of my generation to consider that these companies, because where are you going to work if you're going to be a mining engineer? Probably going to work for one of the big miners in Australia. Well, you might go overseas, but that's kind of that career path. I think a lot of people have actually really shied away from that because there was quite a demonization of those companies. What do you say to those people? Yeah, so I, I think you're right on t- on two levels, right? I think mining is perceived as dirty from an environmental point of view and it's also perceived as dirty as in, oh, I'm going to be out Blowing there wearing my steel cap boots. And it's changing on both of those. So there's a bumper sticker that says, if you don't grow it, you've got to mine it. And that's kind of true, right? So you that. can't make batteries and solar panels from timber, yeah, right? You've got to make them from metal. So the amount of metal that we're going to need, so what one of the investment banks said it's going to cost us about $100 trillion to put in all of the stuff we're going to need to decarbonize, solar panels, wind turbines, transmission, low emissions trucks, all of that stuff, $100 trillion. And of that, $5 trillion is steel. And then there's another couple of trillion, which is other metals. So there's enormous amount of metals that have to go into this. And all of that has to be dug up from the ground. There's a bit of recycling you can do, but there's just not enough. So we need to dig up a lot of metals from Mm. the ground. So if you just think about it, like solar panels and wind farms, what are they made of? They're made of metals and polysilicon, all of that stuff is dug up from the ground. So, you know, this is a noble calling. If you want to save the planet, go into mining because for everything that you might not want to be a petroleum engineer digging up oil because that's the problem, Mm. being a mining engineer or mechatronic engineer to get all the copper and nickel and steel that we need, that is the angel of this whole thing, saving the planet. And in terms of that kind of physical, oh, mining must be dirty, I had the good fortune several years ago to visit the operations center of one of the large mining firms, and it was actually coal mines up in Queensland. And they had looked and they'd realized, like, our gender balance is really bad. It's all men. There's not many women. And then they thought, how are we going to fix that? And so the answer was super clever. They put in a bunch of technology so that instead of managing the mines out in the middle of nowhere where the mines were, Mm. they relayed it all back to Brisbane. They had this massive control room 
and it was like on the 30th floor of this skyscraper in Brisbane, and they set it all up with shifts that were deliberately timed so that you could also do school drop-off and pick-up. And the women were there looking beautiful with their headsets on, standing in front of like 12 massive screens, directing the guys who were out in the middle of nowhere, okay, now we've got to switch from this loader to this loader, slow that one down, bring that one on stream. And they shifted their gender balance enormously in just a couple of years because they used new technology to make the job appealing to women rather than saying, how are we going to get women to put on their steel cap boots and go out to and live in Carapa on a, a fly in, fly out, two weeks on, two weeks off? They were like, okay, how can we change the job so that it works for women? That's and a they did phenomenal that. Phenomenal response. So technology is disrupting every industry in the world, and mining is no different. Mining these days is vastly more, it is like, so technologically sophisticated, a lot of artificial intelligence going in, you know, huge changes in what they're able to do remotely. The largest mines, the trains, all of this stuff is now being run out of Brisbane and out of Perth rather than actually at the mine sites in the middle of nowhere. Now, not that you would never need to go to site and not that you could spend a whole career in mining and not go to site, but actually those sites are kind of cool. Like <laughs> the stuff is amazing. The holes are so big. The but trucks changes are dynamic, you. Right? Yeah. If anyone, like for women in particular, many women would have never considered it because, oh, well, I want a family and how am I ever going to have a family if we're living in somewhere that's only accessible two weeks fly in, fly out? changes the dynamics of the proposition. If you're concerned about cost of living, do a little Google starting salaries for mining engineers. Mm. It's a bit of a wake-up call again. It's all supply and demand. There are just not enough of and them to go around. And it must be as well that if perhaps some of us, me, I'll be honest, were terrible at maths at school, there's all those adjacent industries as well like that yep. are just as important, maybe not yep. paid as well, but like adjacent to the mining engineers that we're going to need because you mentioned like technology like um, yeah like communication yep. iot are all going to facilitate yep. that transition as well so yeah there you go yeah and so i would just really encourage this it kind of just drives me crazy that there's a bit of a mining is dirty i wouldn't want to work for mining i want to mm. save the planet well oh for god's sake this not, is how you're gonna it do is it is mining mining yeah. is gonna save the planet yeah. and australia is a mining powerhouse in global terms, Australia is about 2% of everything. Mm. And then in mining, we punch way above our weight. Alongside Canada, we are yeah. one of the biggest mining countries in the world. Someone said um, to me, we have like nine of 11, I can't remember what the actual figures were, but we have almost every component you require to make a electric vehicle battery. And yep. yet we export all primary yep. resources to then import at a 12,000% markup those batteries yep. back in Australia when we could yep. actually be doing yep. them here, like a completely yep. automated yep. industry and bring manufacturing. There you go. Yeah. Another thing you can do, go into operations and manufacturing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like in a decarbonized world, you mm. know, we could be the OPEC. <laughs> we, yeah. Yeah. We could be like, oh, the leading operator of exactly. electric vehicle technology. That would be very exciting. Well, I think my final question to you is just to sum up and a personal one, to be honest, Kate, you are, you said you will feel maybe the beginning of the effects of climate change, but mostly it will be a burden if we don't respond to this challenge that your kids will feel. 
Do you feel optimistic about the future and why? I do have times when I go, oh my God, this is a big challenge. Mm. But I just look back at history. So, so let's just talk about some little stories from human history. And we've all just been through a pandemic, so we kind of know what that's like. So if you go back a couple of hundred years in London, there was a cholera epidemic and everyone was dying of cholera and no one knew why. And in the first study of true epidemiology, a guy went around and he looked at where the clusters of the cases were and he figured out that cholera came about because the sewage was contaminating the water source. Okay, great. We now know that that's a problem. But what do you do about it? Because at that point, the way everyone dealt with this sewage was you tip the chamber pot out the window onto the street. So then people realize what you've got to do is put in modern sewage systems. So imagine this. You're in a city that is hundreds of years old, built up everywhere, and people start saying, what you've got to do is go underground, build these tunnels, connect up every single building in the whole city and connect all those tunnels in the bigger tunnels and then put them all the way out to sea. Imagine how expensive that was. Imagine how long it took. Imagine how disruptive it was. Mm. And all for what? Like it doesn't kind of make anything better except, oh, you don't know, we'll die from yeah. cholera. We did it. They did it. And then every other city in the world did it. So sewage systems were not built in from the start. It was exactly this thing of, hey, let's all live in a city. Oh, great idea. Except, oh, turns out when we all live in a city, I mean, I think the die. Romans did it before the English discovered yeah. sewage. Yeah. But the English True. like to say True. That they were the pioneers, <laughs> as they do. As they do. We colonize sewage do. as well. As we do. <laughs> So we retrofitted that yeah. at huge but what a huge, what a huge disruption. immense. What a, so then yeah. fast forward to about 100 years ago, mm. New York City, really dense city, they had what was the great manure crisis because what happened was the population was growing so much that everyone had their horse and buggy and all of those horses do what they do and the density of that in the city was such that they just couldn't shovel the stuff fast enough. Oh they gosh. were starting to drown in horse manure. And they're like, oh, my God, what would you? And then a new technology came along, which was the much cleaner internal combustion engine. And within about a decade, New York shifted from horse-drawn carriages with all of their obvious pollution to these new, much cleaner cars. Mm. So it's really ironic now that now we've got to do the next step, which is those cars are not as clean as we thought they were. Yeah. They're all belching CO2 and we've got to make the next iteration. But again, when you've got a new technology and you've got an obvious reason to change, yeah. people will change and it can happen quite quickly. quickly. And then more recently, scientists discovered the ozone hole that actually we were depleting the ozone layer, mm. and if we didn't deal with that, it would have been a certain extinction event. I don't yeah. know that people are really aware of this. The ozone layer protects us from the harmful effects of the sun, and we were destroying that by emitting these certain chemicals. And it was everyone emitting them. So it was kind of like climate change, where if just one country fixed the problem, then it was still going to be an extinction event for everyone. So every country had to agree. And there was this enormous coordination challenge. There were rich countries, there were poor countries. And through the dedicated work of a group of people that actually got every country in the world to agree not to use these harmful chemicals anymore, and we stopped the damage to the ozone hole. So there's a famous quote um, from Winston Churchill in the Second World War when they were trying to get the Americans to come into the war because they knew that would kind of tip the balance. 
And someone asked Winston Churchill, are the Americans ever going to join the war? And he said, Americans can be relied on to do the right thing once they've exhausted all the alternatives. And I think that's kind of true about humanity, right? So we will fix this once we're done faffing around. We don't, you know, when someone goes, hey, cholera is killing people, we don't think, oh, great, let's put in sewage systems, done. Like Mm -hmm. they faff around, they go, it's too expensive, it's too hard, we can't go, he's not going to do it, so I'm not going to do it. We do all of that. And when someone goes, hey, the ozone layer is going to kill us, people don't immediately go, great, let's fix it. They go, oh, well, it's not my problem, and what if they don't do it and it's too expensive? So we faff around as human species. And then eventually when it's important and enough us, we get an inflection point, we get our shit together and we deal with it. We have a history of almost causing ourselves massive problems and then solving those problems. Nothing like death to really focus the mind, right, Kate? Exactly. (laughs) And so now it's getting close enough and salient enough. And interestingly, a lot of what's changing is the very senior people, senior captains of industry have kids who are you know, of that age where they're looking at that going, oh, my God, my kids and my grandkids. So it's no longer this abstract thing. It's my kids, my grandkids, what kind of world do I want them in? And that really the thought of the destruction that could await their own children and grandkids is changing them. Selfishness for sustainability should be (laughs) an advertising campaign. When it's suddenly, when it's your kin, you suddenly go, wow, let's do something about that. Let's do something about it. Well, Kate, I have to say, every time I have a conversation with you, I feel less bleak about the world. So thank you so much for coming on the pod this week. Excellent. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Big Swinging Stocks. Make sure to like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss part two of this series on investing for climate action. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes.